With the urgency of addressing climate change, there is a growing imperative to advance and deepen the voluntary carbon market to help companies and organizations on their journey towards net zero. But not all carbon projects are created equal, and many of them have a negative impact on nature and biodiversity, essential pillars of any strategy to achieve environmental sustainability. Developing a robust and credible voluntary carbon market that measures the wider impact of carbon projects on nature would be a big step forward. But how close are we? And what does the current landscape look like? I'm Tom Parker, and with me to discuss this, as well as what various stakeholders, from governments to NGOs and the private sector, can do to help develop a metric, is John Scott, Head of Sustainability Risk, and Anya Leia Fisher, Head of Operational Sustainability, both from Zurich Insurance Group. Also joining us is Tom Crowther, Professor of Ecology at ETH Zurich, founder of Restore, and co-chair of the advisory board to the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. Tom, why don't you start us off? What risks are there if biodiversity, reforestation and responsible land use are not taken seriously? And what opportunities are there if we raise our goals? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I think I'd start by saying that we can't achieve our Paris climate goals without nature. You know, we need to conserve nature to try and limit emissions by 20 to 30 percent. We need to restore nature to try and achieve carbon drawdown of 20 to 30 percent. It's a really central part in the process. But we must remember that nature isn't just a load of carbon. It's the infinite network of complexity that keeps these systems sustainable. And it's only when they're sustainable and supporting life in the long term that they can really contribute. Anya, with Thomas having set the scene for us, what solutions exist to help preserve biodiversity and reduce CO2 emissions? And what can businesses do to help support nature-based initiatives? I think one of the more commonly used tools that businesses are taking advantage of is, is the voluntary emissions reduction market or VAR market or, or offsetting market. It's accessible by, by any corporation, right? And it creates an opportunity to send funding into projects that will not only, often the best ones, right, will not only keep carbon from being emitted uh, into the atmosphere through avoided deforestation, as one example, but the really high quality projects are putting funding into other co-benefits, such as social programs, environmental programs, programs that support avoided biodiversity loss. Can you tell us a little bit about Zurich and what projects it is involved in that help reduce its own emissions, but also promote further CO2 reductions in line with net zero goals? Absolutely. So first and foremost, it's incredibly important when you're making a claim such as carbon neutrality that the focus is always on reducing emissions as priority number one. As I mentioned, since 2014, we have been carbon neutral. We have achieved this through our work with the Rimbaraya Biodiversity Reserve. This is an excellent project located in Indonesia on the island of Borneo that has kept an area of peat swamp rainforest from being slashed and burned by the palm oil industry. And they've been very successful at not only keeping that forest intact, but also creating many, many different programs that impact the local communities. More recently, we've also announced that we are aiming to be net zero in our operations by 2030. So we just launched our path, I say, to net zero. We've done this now through um, some initial pre-purchasing agreements with initially some biochar companies. So we work with two One is based in Oregon in the United States, and they actually take biomass from forests to help avoid or minimize risks from forest fires or the intensity of forest fires. 
And the other project is based in Puerto Rico, where they take nuisance bamboo that's blocking rivers when there are storms, and they're using that as their feedstock to produce this biochar. And of course, one of the great implications or, or, or use cases for biochar is to mix it in soil uh, and use it in farming to help improve the quality of the soil. Tom, back to you. Tell us more about the seed biocomplexity index that is currently being developed. Yeah, sure. So we're at a particularly important time in the environmental movement because as markets start to be built around the idea of valuing nature, billions and billions of dollars are starting to be spent in the promotion of nature. But if those markets are built on faulty metrics, they're going to cause much more harm than good. And, you know, I have my own reservations about the concept of a carbon market, particularly with respect to nature, because it is one metric, one aspect of nature out of the trillions of valuable services and species that represent the true complexity of nature. And there are wonderful examples of people working sustainably for ecosystem health and getting carbon capture as a result that they can trade. But there's many others that are just trying to maximize carbon capture at the expense of everything else. I've even met people who want to plant vast monocultures of eucalyptus in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And they say, look, I'm sorry about the biodiversity impact, but I'm trying to solve for climate. And I would argue that that is having much, much more harm than good. That is not only not helping the climate in a sustainable way, it's devastating biodiversity in local economies. So that's the challenge we're trying to solve for, not just in a carbon market, but also in a biodiversity market. If we build any market around any particular aspect of nature, whether it's the edible parts, the parts that capture carbon, or just the number of species, we will oversimplify and then markets will propagate that at scale. If we make it about the number of ponds, we're going to get ponds everywhere. And that's not necessarily the natural state of ecosystems. We need to build it out of the true complexity of biodiversity across genetic species and ecosystem levels. So this seed metric that we've been working with a large network of academics around the world is trying to do that. It's using sort of multidimensionality approaches to collapse as many of the academic community's global layers about the genetic composition of the plants, microbes and animals in any location on the planet. It also has the species composition of the plants, microbes and animals at any location. And it's got then the ecosystem characteristics that tell you how integral that particular ecosystem is to the wider landscape, how central it is or how connected it is, things that tell you about the health of that ecosystem. And we can measure that then for every 10 meter patch on the entire planet, which provides a globally standardized simple measure from a naught to one, you know, naught being a bit of tarmac, one being the totally natural intact state. And that means we can all have a sort of globally standardized and and unified metric where we can make comparable investigations into our footprint, whether they be positive or negative. And by linking it up with satellite imagery, we can see how that biodiversity complexity is changing over time, which is something that hopefully can help people to understand their footprints and begin to imagine how to build financial systems to promote biocomplexity. What fascinating work you're doing there, Tom. Looking ahead to the UN Biodiversity Conference COP15 this year, a draft version of the accord predicts a united global goal to preserve 30% of the planet's land and oceans by 2030. But financing for poorer countries is a sticking point. Is this target ambitious enough? And will it be enough to help meet and exceed net zero goals? John, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Tom. I think it's really important that the COP15 UN Biodiversity Conference delivers on this 3030 goal. I think that's really a baseline, if you like. It's a good place to start. 
And as Tom has been saying about the complexities of biodiversity, uh, it's not just as straightforward as preserving just one set of areas in land and sea. It's got to be many interconnected areas. So I think this is just the beginning of a of a tough challenge. But it's great that COP15 is going to set that challenge for countries to deliver on, because unless we have these tough challenges, we don't actually end up achieving them. And regarding help from the global north for the global south, I mean, this has been the challenge for the COP climate discussions for quite some time uh, around discussions on the topic of loss and damage. And in fact, has been some of the most politically challenging uh, issues to resolve, still not really resolved or, or delivered. And so I'm sure this will be just as equally challenging for the global biodiversity framework. But generally, I think we should really welcome this uh, projected goal, as I think it's really going to help us achieve our targets on protecting biodiversity. Anya? I can't comment necessarily on is that is the target, you know, scientifically challenging uh, enough, but I I can echo, of course, uh, what John says and setting bold targets is what we need to be doing today, because that is what grabs attention. If you set a target that is not very ambitious, you kind of give others, you know, an excuse of someone else will do something. So 100 percent agree. Bold targets are absolutely what's needed, even if they're going to be really, really hard to achieve. Right. We should still we should still strive uh, strive for as much as we can. And I think they have that that shock factor um, that's needed to, to grab attention and, and, and generate movement and action today and not, not tomorrow. Tom, your thoughts? Yeah, the 30-30 goals, I think, are particularly important. And it's worth noting that I think this year the Biodiversity COP is going to be at least as important, if not more important, than the Climate COP, which is an exciting development because I think it's one we've all been needing Those targets are set based on scientific insights into the tipping points of ecosystem collapse at a global planetary scale. And for that reason, I don't think those targets are ambitious. I think they're the last resource. You know, if, if, if we, if we fail that by even 1%, we're starting to see ecosystem tips at a global scale, which would have far more damaging impacts than any climate, climate change that we've been facing until now. So I don't think they are ambitious. I think they are the bare minimum of what we need to achieve. Sticking again with you, Tom, what are the current challenges to creating a universal metric that would help compare the impact of specific carbon projects on nature with that of others? So academics for the last 20 years, as a result of the big data explosion, have been generating incredible insights about different aspects of biodiversity across the planet, whether it's the soil microbes or the fungi or the plants and animals, that are all of which are necessary to maintain an ecosystem. And so there's a lot of people that say there's plenty of data out there. There's plenty of metrics out there. We don't need more. And I would actually, I would agree. I I obviously want academics to keep generating more and more fantastic information. And the richer that information gets, the better our insights get. But right now we need expertise, the ecological expertise to be able to hold and collapse and condense that information into something meaningful. And so that's something we've been focusing a lot of our energy on because until now, I think people focusing on the financial markets have been very well meaning, very well intentioned, often NGOs or organizations that are outside the academic world that don't necessarily have that depth of insight about how you compile and collapse and coordinate all that information. And so, yeah, this is our focus is to generate, to use the wealth of information the academic community has been generating for the last couple of decades to be able to collapse it in a smart way to represent truly the complexity of ecosystems across the planet, not just to say, 
how complex is it now, but how complex is it relative to its natural state in every location? It's that relativity that, that makes it something that can make sense and be comparable for everyone everywhere across the planet. This is a question for all of you. What can stakeholders do to work towards a global metric? And how would this help to make the voluntary carbon market more effective? Anya, what are your thoughts? I think that's ultimately right what Tom is describing. That is the goal to make something complex, simple, that we can actually use it in our engagement with stakeholders. So they understand, at least to some degree, what is the, the scope of, of the problem at hand. So I think we need to keep working in that direction and, and find very simple ways to explain these very complex topics to make sure that, you know, we're taking people on this journey. And hopefully through this will be with time broadening not only awareness, but true understanding within our respective businesses, communities, within governments. I'll admit it for me still today, I mean, climate change is super complex and there's a million things I probably still don't know about it. And, and same for, for biodiversity. We can only know what we know, right? So very grateful for the work of people like Tom, right, who are trying to simplify the complex so that we can actually have more effective discussions with our internal stakeholders to get the buy-in, to get the budgets, to start driving more action in this space. John, your thoughts? I think with biodiversity, it's so much more complicated in uh, finding a single global metric compared with climate change, where uh, especially with greenhouse gas emissions, we've got carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent as a metric, uh, which is infinitely easier just to well, it's still difficult to get hold of the data to tell us about that. But I think in biodiversity, as Thomas talked about, the incredible levels of complexity uh, makes describing biodiversity with a single metric at a global level very, very difficult. So I think the reality is, depending on the, the kind of biomes that we're looking at, the sort of parts of the land, air and sea that we want to look at, we have to really apply some quite useful analysis, which the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures is uh, deploying around the LEAP process, that's locate, evaluate, assess and prepare, to try and understand how we're impacting or the, how the companies we either invest in or support in uh, through underwriting, how they're interacting with nature and biodiversity. And I think in particular on the locate piece, it's not just about locating a uh, uh, an asset in a particular geography. It's about how that asset or that activity is impacting on biodiversity through a supply chain. Uh, and that's infinitely more complex, but it's this kind of thing that we have to address and simplify. And I think once we do that, we'll, we'll have a set of metrics that will really help financial services companies understand their impact on their portfolios on, on nature. Thank you, John. Tom, wade in here. While I agree entirely with everything that you just said, I will respectfully disagree with John that I think it is possible. I mean, it's the job of the academic community to make the complex available to the non-academic community. If we don't do that, what's the point of our existence? And I think, so what we can do is tell you how complex a place is proportional to its natural state. And we can do that for anywhere, which gives you a value from naught to one. And I think, and obviously we do that at the eco-region level. The, the world is split up into 850 eco-regions. So we can do it at a very regional scale to say, right, this place would naturally look like that. You're 80% of the way there. And that can be something that's at least more condensable. Because I agree entirely with John that the, the challenge with biodiversity has always been that we never had that metric. Carbon, there's a nice single atom, single number. Biodiversity has been this complex, amorphous concept. Uh, but I think that's what we've been working towards. What stakeholders can do, I think, is if you're getting involved in carbon markets, 
think through the lens of biodiversity first. If you are going to be buying carbon, investing in carbon, I would try to promote doing so through someone who's considering the biodiversity footprint on, on that carbon. So I've seen a few organizations out there selling, you know, trading carbon credits, but they will scale down the value of that carbon based on how damaged the biodiversity footprint is, which makes a lot of sense. But I still think that's a halfway house towards a much more valuable move, which will be towards a biodiversity market. I think that's going to be a much bigger and more important step for the financial world after the carbon markets have sort of settled down. So to conclude, what are the short-term actions that we can take to use existing metrics more effectively? Anya? Well, really trying to insist on an understanding of those metrics. I would just echo this call for do your due diligence, whether that be you're getting active in the voluntary carbon market. I consider it still a high-risk space because we're ultimately buying an invisible commodity, right? So it's incredibly important you understand who you're working with, what are the the inputs to the project, and and what are the impacts on the community, on the local biodiversity, etc. Do your due diligence. It could also be looking in your own supply chain. It could be looking at your customers. Who are you working with? There's still opportunities, even if you're maybe not active in the, the voluntary carbon market space, you could still be influencing through your power as a business, through your purchasing power, and ensuring that, that you're Again, your suppliers, your customers, maybe where you're investing your money, that we know where it's going and who we're working with and who our partners are. And and, and this is a big ask, but we got to start, right? we got to start somewhere. So that's something that I think we're all realizing and all trying to do better is, 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 is our due diligence, understand our supply chain, understand our customer supply chain, and make sure that we're sending the right messages on what's okay and, and what's what's not okay. John? In the short term, I think we've got a couple of things that we should be focusing on. One is this uh, Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets and following the core carbon principles, and in particular the one on principle on sustainability. The second opportunity really is through the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. Uh, Just as with the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, this will help us in the finance sector uh, link the biodiversity and nature-related risks to the financial risks on which we base our decisions. I think any metrics that we create within that framework have to help us understand those risks better so we take better decisions to protect both planet and people. Wonderful. And Tom? I would say quickest, simplest thing to do is reframe your goals so it's not carbon first and then the others next. If you invest in things that promote nature and biodiversity, then carbon will happen as a result. And then you're getting sustainable, valuable carbon commitments rather than the dangerous ones that can exist otherwise. It is a bit of a wild west out there. There's hundreds of thousands of brilliant projects and hundreds of thousands of struggling projects. And you can either invest in a small number and in that case, do your due diligence. As Anya said, find the ones that are doing good for the biodiversity and the people who live there. Or an alternative is to find vast portfolios and get a diverse mixture of investments, some of which will be struggling, some of which will be doing well, but you can help those local organizations to progress. Don't focus on one massive organization that has already been proven to succeed and so everyone's going to support them. An environmental movement is not built from one or two organizations doing very well. It's built from hundreds of thousands of local communities becoming economically sustainable through nature. Anya, any last thoughts? For me, every little bit counts. And and I think it's important for individuals, companies to not be too intimidated by the complexity of the challenge. Get started, try, start something, start somewhere. And don't shy away from the challenge because every little thing you do 
going towards that goal that we all have of stopping climate change and protecting biodiversity will contribute and will help. So yeah, don't let the enormity of the challenge be too be too intimidating for you because it matters, it counts. Just go, just start. You've laid down the gauntlet there, Anya. Tom, can you beat that? Yeah, I, I'd say it's an incredibly exciting time right now. The idea of getting the power of financial markets to work in favor of nature rather than against it means that we are at an incredibly exciting moment. But we just have to make sure we learn from the failures of the past to not value any particular aspect of nature over everything else. And finally, John. It's time for business to realize that you cannot do business on a dead planet. And it's even more difficult doing it on a dying planet. So we have to realize, uh, make the connection between nature Tom, Anya and John, thank you very much for your time today. And to our listeners, you can find other episodes and related content at biggerpicture.ft.com.